Good morning everyone. Uh, today we're continuing our journey through Genesis, but before we continue with chapter 16, the story of Hagar and Ishmael, let's remind ourselves where we got up to. In the previous chapter, which Sarah unpacked for us a couple of weeks ago, the Lord appears to Abraham for the second time and promises that he will have a son who will be his own flesh and blood, and through him his descendants will be as numerous as stars in the sky and inherit the land of Canaan. And in verse uh, 6 of chapter 15, um, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Then Abraham asked, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? In response, the Lord commands Abraham to take a heifer, a goat and a ram, each of these animals three years old, and cut them in two and arrange the halves opposite one another. This sounds very weird to us, uh, but in Abraham's day, uh, this was how two people made a covenant. Now you might remember that what usually happened was that both parties walked through the pieces and in doing so they promised that if they broke the terms of the covenant their bodies would be like the unfortunate animals whose bits they were walking through. But in this case only the Lord passed between the pieces of the animals in the form of a smoking pot and a blazing torch. And in effect the Lord took upon himself the consequences of not only his failure to adhere to the terms of the covenant, which of course is never in question, but of Abraham's as well. In other words, he promises that I will be faithful to this covenant and I will cover your unfaithfulness as well. Now this is unheard of in the ancient world. The weaker party was always the one to pass through um, the animal pieces and never the stronger party on their own. So this is um, remarkable. And there's another thing going on here as well, the animals were flesh and blood. So how could the Lord take upon himself the consequences of Abraham's disobedience when he's spirit and not flesh and blood? There's only one way that this, um, the, the consequence, the, the promise of God could be fulfilled, and that is if the Lord became human. So he had flesh and uh, blood that could be spilled. So this passage is actually a prophecy that God would enter our world, he would become flesh and blood like us, and ultimately his body would be broken and his blood shed because of our failure to adhere to the terms of the covenant he made with the father of our faith, Abraham. So as Sarah concluded, this scripture points to Jesus in a way that no other Old Testament passage does. This is amazing stuff. So what exactly was Abraham's responsibility in the covenant? Well, his responsibility was to believe. Now, remember, the context was that Abraham requested assurance that he would possess the land because he knew that it was fully occupied by pagans. And in response, God makes a covenant promising that he would give the land to Abraham. And therefore, Abraham's part was to have faith that God would keep his promise. That was his uh, part of the covenant. But it doesn't take long, uh, the very next chapter in fact, to see that the faith of Abraham was defective. And this is important for us to, to understand, to identify with, because like Abraham, we too are in the same covenant of faith with God, and we too have faith that is de defective. So today we're going to see how cultural expectations and beliefs that we often unquestioningly accept are a significant factor in us becoming dissatisfied with aspects of our lives 
And this leads to a build-up of impatience with God's plans and timing for us. And impatience leads us to take matters into our own hands. And taking matters into our own hands represents a lapse of faith. And that a lapse of faith is a breach of God's covenant. These breaches of covenant mean that we fall from grace and we effectively revert to the old covenant of trying to save ourselves. However, the wonderful news in this passage that we're looking at today is that the same promise that God gave to Abraham, that he would cover his unfaithfulness, his lapses of faith, his imperfections, this promise is ours as well. And, and if there's one thing that I'd like you to remember from today's message is that God's grace is greater than our failures. So let's get back to the story. It's 10 years later. Now 10 years is a long time in anyone's life, but when you're waiting for something that you've been promised, it's a very long time. And I've experienced something a little similar myself. Um, my deadline for getting married was the age of 25, and so by the time I got to 29, I was really starting to get ants in my pants. Come on, God, what are you doing? When is she going to turn up? And then in 1999, I mistakenly believed um, to have heard from God that I'd be married before the turn of the millennium. And so I felt like the most miserable man on earth when we got to Y2K. Um, but more than that, I decided that if God couldn't come through for me, I'd go find a wife myself. And the result was very painful. So effectively, I'd run out of faith that God knew what he was doing in my life, that he had good things for me in store, and that um, he needed some help. He needed my help. Now, to independently try to help God accomplish his purposes is what theologians call synergism. Synergism always leads to disaster. And uh, that was certainly the case uh, for me, and it definitely was the case for Abraham. So I can completely understand Sarah wanting to take matters into her own hands here at the start of chapter 16. It's not like she was young. She was um, already um, um, many years on in age, and it was 10 years since the Lord had promised um, a son for the second time and it's it's very difficult to to keep believing when it never happens so you promise something but it, it just the years roll around and it never happens and so she says the lord has kept me from having children and says to abraham go sleep with my slave perhaps i can build a family through her so she decided that god needed a hand to fulfill his promise now note here that while what she said was true, it was only half the truth. A more accurate statement would be, the Lord has kept me from having children up until now, but he promised me it would happen one day. When we're under pressure, we need to keep a careful eye on what we tell ourselves. And if you're facing a faith-challenging situation right now, what are you telling yourself? If you find yourself thinking something that is bringing you feelings of anxiety and pain, capture it and take it to God and ask him if it's true or not. And if you're still not sure about it, take it to someone you respect and ask them to help you discern whether it's true or not. Remember the meditations of our hearts lead to emotions that lead to actions. And when those meditations aren't true, the feelings are going to be bad and the actions will be too. So through her belief that God's blessing would never come to pass for her, Sarah was filled with pain and sorrow. 
and impatience. And because of these feelings and her own initiative, uh, she tried to fulfill the divine promise through her Egyptian slave Hagar. Now this was a common practice in those days, let's be fair. Uh, so common in fact that there was a law protecting both the wife and the slave should things get out of hand. In the code of, there's a guy called Hammurabi who was an emperor uh, and he wrote a code in about 1750 BC, uh, a legal text. And one of the um, items says this, if a man take a wife and she give this man a maidservant as wife and she bear him children, then this maidservant assume equality with the wife. Because she has borne him children, her master shall not sell her for money, but he may keep her as a slave, reckoning her among the maidservants. So in other words, this describes exactly what's happened in the situation with uh, Sarah and Hagar and Abraham. Because Hagar has gotten pregnant, uh, Hagar is starting to um, assume equality with, with Sarah and Sarah doesn't like it. Um, so there's friction there. But Abraham um, is not to sell her as a slave and uh, keep the money. Um, and so there's protection for both um, uh, the, the maidservant and there's protection for the wife because it's basically saying that the maidservant is not to take the place of the wife. So while there was cultural precedence in what Sarah wanted to do, there's no glory for God here. It was not part of his plan for Abraham and Sarah at all. And that's how we know when we're taking matters into our own hands. There's no glory for God. Having said that, I can fully understand what Sarah did because I did something similar myself. Uh, God allows us to be put in situations that are beyond us to deal with ourselves. And when crunch time comes, we can either insist on our own way or we can cry out to God for his grace and help. Now, it's, it's always interesting to look in the New Testament um, and see if it mentions some of these Old Testament characters. And in the book of Galatians, Paul says that Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law, of course. And this is Hagar because his son Ishmael came about as a result of human striving. Sarah, on the other hand, represents the new covenant of grace because her son Isaac came about as a result of God's grace and power. In one covenant, we try to prove ourselves right. Uh, that's like legalism. And in the other, our faith in the goodness and graciousness of God is credited to us as righteousness despite our wrongs. So once again, we see characters in these Genesis stories representing the two ways of approaching God. And it's remarkable when you consider that um, the entrance of Christ into the world was thousands of years before these stories were um, came after, um, sorry, uh, thousands of years after these stories were written. And, and who could have thought that, that God would become a man uh, and, and his body broken and his blood shed in payment for our failure to adhere to these uh, covenants that were made so long ago. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, another, more, more evidence to me that the, the scriptures are divinely inspired because how could you possibly orchestrate this? Now, taking matters into our own hands always has consequences. Um, and we've seen that already. Um, but I really feel for Abraham here. I mean, what man wouldn't have taken up that offer? Let's let's be honest. 
especially when it was common in the culture of that day. But I think he knew deep down that this was not how God would fulfill his promise. But like Abraham, um, Adam, Adam before him, he didn't push back. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said and uh, in showing and doing so that his uh, faith was the defective. And it didn't take long for things to turn to custard. As soon as Hagar knew she was pregnant, the scripture says she begins to despise her mistress. And the Hebrew word here means to be small. In other words, I'm better than you because I have conceived and you haven't. Now in ancient culture, one of the main purposes of a woman was to bear children. And biologically, that's still hugely important uh, for many women today. Um, and we saw previously from the Code of Hammurabi the actions women were prepared to take to make it happen, even to share her husband, take the child of another woman as their own, and relegate the slave. Um, so um, this is a hugely important thing. And despite the fact that Abraham loved Sarah greatly, and Sarah would have known this, um, Sarah would have felt worthless because she hadn't been able to have a child and we can see the pain of this in Sarah because she starts to blame Abraham for what was her idea and she starts to mistreat Hagar, which, let, let's be fair, probably meant physical, physical abuse. And initially I thought Sarah was completely out of line here when she berated Abraham. It, it almost seemed um, unreasonably unfair. She said, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Hey, come on, it was your idea, sister. How can you tell someone to do something and then blame them when it turns to custard? But then I realized that there might be something more going on here than meets the eye. Hagar was an Egyptian, and how would Abraham of Sarah have acquired an Egyptian slave? Most likely, she was one of the slaves that Pharaoh gave to Abraham when they disobeyed God and left Canaan during the famine. So maybe Sarah's blaming Abraham here because they wouldn't have had Hagar at all if it hadn't been for Abraham's last failure. So that made a bit more sense to me. But consequences again. While, while God covers our sins, he, um, he allows the consequences to manifest. So imagine the disharmony in Abraham's tent. Uh, they say they say there's only one thing worse than the scorn of a woman, and that's the scorn of two women. Uh, because Hagar was more than a slave now, I bet she was giving him a hard time as well. Come on, are you going to stand up for me at all? I, I bet he went off to sit with his camels more than once to get a bit of peace and quiet. Now, what was the source of the antagonism here between Hagar and Sarah? I mean, Hagar... Um, was pregnant, that's a good thing, right? That's the plan coming to fruition. Um, but there's layers of meaning that have been placed on Hagar's pregnancy by both Hagar and Sarah. Um, so, yes, biology plays a big part in wanting to have children, but surely the demands of their culture, which told them that to be a successful woman you have to have children, was also a massive factor. And if you couldn't have children, you're a failure. And in this, um, you can really see this in Sarah and, and how she responds. Now, in our culture, we might say, isn't it wonderful that we've moved beyond that primitive mindset where a woman's worth was tied up in whether or not she could have children? And while that's true to a certain extent, have we left that mindset behind or have we actually replaced it with something else? 
You see, every culture tells us, both men and women, what we must do to be esteemed, to be successful, to be worth something. What does our culture tell women what they must do to be successful? Seems to me that women feel a certain pressure to do it all now, not just having kids. So women have to look hot, be intelligent, have a successful career, and have children. Oh, and then go back to looking hot once you've had kids. Look at our Prime Minister. She's attractive, she's intelligent, holds a Bachelor of Communication Studies in Politics and Public Relations. Her career as a politician is, is about as, as successful as you can get because now she runs the country. And on top of that, she's had a child while holding office. Wow, you know, woman can do anything. There you go. That's the cultural message I was bombarded with when I was growing up. In fact, um, in her boarding house, um, someone, one of, one of the girls in the, the school, um, sellotaped a note to the wall saying woman can do anything. We couldn't get away from it. And on the face of it, woman can do anything is supposed to be a liberating call and an encouragement for women to get out there and follow their career dreams. But I also wonder if it was a double-sided coin. Has the statement woman can do anything morphed into woman have got to do everything? And that's a quite a different thing. And because we have this terrible habit, both men and women, of comparing ourselves with others, we feel like we are lesser people if we haven't ticked as many boxes as others of the same age and life stage. And I don't think this message was great for men either, by the way. No one told us what men could do. We, we just got told women can do anything. Really? Okay, well, what can men do? Maybe get out of the way of the woman coming through. As a result, I think men of my generation have grown up wondering exactly what our role is in society now, in families. I don't understand why we have to belittle one group of people in order to lift another group up. Jesus never did that. <clears throat> now don't hear me saying that I think the role of a woman is to stay at home and look after the kids. Not at all. In fact, actually I've been trying to convince Sarah that she should go to work and I'll stay home and look after the kids. But unfortunately she's not having a bar of it. But the point of what I'm saying is this, not much has changed really. Every culture places definitions of meaning and success on its members and ours is no different. These cultural expectations can, can make a difficult, take a difficult situation and make it unbearable if we allow them. I think one of the key messages of this text is that God would want us to critically examine and push back on these beliefs instead of unquestioningly buying into them, because they cause so much misery. Take, a, take a, a difficult situation, and then we add all these layers of meaning on it that make it a hundred times worse. <clears throat> but pushing back on our cultural beliefs is easy to say, but much more difficult to do. Half the time, we don't even realise that we bought into what our culture is feeding us. So how do we push back on these things that sneak their way into our hearts without us even knowing and become a part of the landscape of our worldview and we, don't, we stop seeing them? I think the first step is to realise that every culture holds out a specific vision of the good life. Remember, we've talked about this before, telos, which is a picture of what human flourishing looks like. We've talked about this, um, the importance of this and uh, how how much of a factor it is in how we view life and our lives. And it's important to realise that this picture, is a, uh, this vision of human flourishing is an actual image, it's a picture. It's not a set of 
propositions that are written down and handed to us. For example, when we dream, we dream in pictures, don't we? Uh, we don't dream in words. Um, if I dream of going fishing, I'm, I imagine myself, I picture myself fishing, and I'm hauling in a, a big fish. I, I, don't, I don't dream in text that tells me I'm fishing. And I think that's why TV shows and movies are so powerful in selling us these dreams. Music videos are especially powerful in this regard to our young people, and I'd, I'd really urge young people to stay away from music videos if they can. I've, I've been watching them, and they're, and they're just, yeah, terrible. If we actually wrote down what the vision of human flourishing is of some of these things, it, it would sound ridiculous. But I think that's exactly what we should do as a first step. Realise that we have swallowed these cultural visions of a good life and ask God to help us articulate them. How do we know what we've swallowed? Well, all we need to do is stand back from ourselves and examine what we spend a lot of our time thinking about and doing. Maybe look at your um, social media habits. What, what do you spend a lot of time reading about and, and thinking about? I've started... Um, to realise that I've begun to be a, a bit jealous when I hear about how much more some people are earning than me, especially when they're a lot younger than me. There's a comparison thing again. What does that t uh, say about the vision of human flourishing? My heart is caught. Another way we can do this is to articulate what the scriptures say is a vision of human flourishing and compare that to what we spend our time dreaming of. Have you ever wondered why there's so many stories in the Bible? I think that one of the main reasons is that these stories are so powerful uh, in conveying uh, pictures of what God considers to be human flourishing. So here's your homework for this week. Take a story from the Bible, say Daniel in the lion's den or something, or Jonah, um, and articulate the implicit telos or vision of human flourishing that it's conveying to us and compare and contrast to what you've discovered in yourself. Perhaps if Sarah had considered how much she was being influenced by her culture here, she wouldn't have been in such misery and maybe she wouldn't have reacted in the way that she did and proposed her plan to Abraham that was going to cause so much damage to them personally, uh, to Hagar, it caused a lot of damage to her, and also to the descendants, the, the nation of Israel and, and all the Arab people who traced their lineage back to Is, uh, Ishmael. But she didn't and the rest is history. The test was too much and the faith of Abraham and Sarah was shown to be defective. They took matters into their own hands and tried to fulfill God's promises themselves. And this brings us to a really important question. How do we not take matters into our own hands if it brings so much pain and sorrow into our lives? Um, thinking back on my life, when I was trying to find my Sarah, I was torn. It seemed to me that there were two extremes. The first extreme was to do nothing and wait for God to act sovereignly, and basically drop her in my lap. Well, the second one, charge out there and do something myself. And they seem to be mutually exclusive, and I, I found myself constantly oscillating between these two extremes. And I see received much conflicting advice. On the one hand, you've just got to wait. God's got it in hand, he will be faithful. But then there was, God's not going to drop her in her lap. God can only steer a ship that's moving. And finally, the old... God helps those who help themselves. What to do? Is the message of the story of Hagar and Ishmael that it's wrong to initiate action ourselves and that we should do absolutely nothing and wait for God to drop our answer in our lap? I don't think so. 
Remember the definition of synergism was to independently try to help God accomplish his purpose. So if we're doing the opposite of independently, which is dependently, then we're not being involved in synergism and we're not taking matters into our own hands. So we're dependently uh, seeking God and seeing if there's anything we can do to, um, to make his, his dreams for us come about. So the failure of Abraham and Sarah was that they momentarily stopped believing in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And we can see that in the opening verses of chapter 16, where they didn't include God at all in their deliberation. So they were independently trying to help God accomplish his purposes. So that's synergism. But I think we can still take action uh, if we depend on, on God, keep looking to him, and uh, keep seeking uh, his, his, his revelations about um, the, any actions that we can take. We can hold out to God our dreams and plans, and we can always see him as the source of the answer. So if you're facing a similar situation in an area of your life, where you really need a breakthrough, can I encourage you with these steps? Firstly, seek the will of God for your situation. If God doesn't want us to, to be in a certain place, then the sooner we find that out and make our peace with it, the better, right? Um, Abraham and Sarah already knew the will of God, and he had promised them as many descendants as there were stars in the sky, as well as the land that they were living on. So they knew the will of God. They, they had the promise of God. And in my own uh, life, when I, whenever I sought God about whether he wanted me to be married, I kept on getting uh, a, a spiritual sense that, yes, it will happen. In my mind's eye, I, kept, uh, I sensed God smiling at me and saying it was going to be okay. And when I doubted, I went to godly people who confirmed that, yes, I had heard correctly. So this is a hard step, right, because we have to be willing for that answer to be no. Um, and that in itself took a long time to get to. But I got to the stage where I was just like, Lord, I just want to know. Just tell me, am I, am I going to be married or am I not? In which case, if I'm not, just help me to get on with my life. But I, I get, like I say, I, I got that impression that, yes, it's going to be all right. You're going to be married one day. And that was that settled on on my heart and it gave me a deep sense of peace and I think once you hear from God yourself um, the same thing will happen a deep sense of peace and this is that that takes a lot of those layers of of pain out of it if you've heard from God another thing that greatly helped is articulating exactly what we desire and this is something Jesus asked many people right what do you want what do you want if we articulate what we want, it will bring a lot of clarity to our decision making. For example, I realized that my desire was to find God's choice of wife for me. And that I think that resulted in a check in my spirit with all the ladies I ever met until I met Sarah. So so once once we have a once we're confident we know the will of God for us in the situation that we're facing, we can talk to him about any plans we're making. We can keep our spiritual eyes on him. Often in our disappointment and frustration, we get so upset with God that we exclude him. It's, it's like we, we close a blind or close the curtains 
on him and say, okay, I've, I've had enough of you. I'm going to take matters into my, my own hands. And that's what Sarah and Abraham did here. Perfectly understandable, but her exclusion of God from her plans was a big mistake and had massive consequences. And it's moments like these that we really need to hold on to the fact that God is for us, not against us, and that he knows what's best. God loves us. This is, this is what it boils down to. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. So once you feel you know the Lord's will, ask him if there's any specific action that you can take and develop your plans dependently with him in his presence. And then when you come to put your plans into action, keep let's keep our spiritual eyes on Jesus and see him as the source of our answer. So, so if you're sick, by all means, seek medical help and care. But keep your eyes on Jesus as the one who is the source of, of that healing through that medical help and care. Um, and if we desire to get married um, and... If you feel that God is okay with you trying out internet dating, by all means, give it a crack. But again, ask the Lord, Lord, give me that right door, that, that right opportunity that is your, that your opportunity for me that I can go through. Carry out your plans with God rather than doing them on your own, and then you will stay away from synergism. Having said all that, this story tells us that even the greatest of believers stumble Abraham and Sarah are the heroes, the, the ancestors of our faith. And if they failed, we're going to fail too. It's not a matter of if, but when. If we didn't fail sometimes, we wouldn't need the grace of God. And most of us have found that it is in our failures that, lead it, that, that we really uh, encountered uh, a much greater understanding of what God's grace is than when we were doing well. Which brings us to the real, real hero of the story, the faithfulness and the graciousness of God. So in a culture that said that the definition of success was to have children and lots of them, especially a boy who would be heir to the family's wealth, God put Abraham and Sarah in a situation where they couldn't have any. And although he promised them that one day they would have a child, he made them wait and wait and wait. And remember, there was still another 15 years to go after this incident uh, before Isaac was born. What, what a test. And even though they stumbled in their faith, their faith was de defective, we, if you keep reading, they remained in Canaan, as God had told them. And God covered their failure to believe, as he promised he would. He was still faithful to his covenant. He still brought Isaac into the world, despite the fact that they failed in their faith. So that is the real hero of the story, the faithfulness and the graciousness of God. And this story should be a huge encouragement to us. Like Abraham and Sarah, we too have been credited righteousness through our faith in Jesus Christ. And like them, we too get put in situations that are beyond us to cope with in ourselves. And we stumble in our faith as well, and we fail. And the same God who fulfilled his promise to pay for the failure of Abraham and Sarah and in the, in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus also pays for our failure to have faith in the goodness and graciousness of God. So perhaps you might have doubted the goodness and graciousness of God in this past week. 
and maybe you've also taken matters into your own hands and and, and done things that have uh, negative consequences. If you have, take heart. God has covered your stumbling and you are still righteous in his eyes. You see, God didn't say to Abraham, Abe, you have really screwed up here and I'm extremely disappointed in you. I thought you were better than that. I think I'll go and find someone else more reliable than you. There's no record of God expressing anything negative to him at all. I think that's because in God's eyes, Abraham had, had been credited righteousness and he was still righteous. <coughs> it was as if he hadn't messed up at all. God would be faithful to his promises and he would cover Abraham's lack of faith. What a wonderful God we have. Despite their very public stumbles, the heroes of the scriptures were all commended for their faith, believing in the goodness and the trustworthiness of God and that somehow God would make them right with him. This kind of faith is very, very precious to God. In fact, the scripture says that without this faith, it is impossible to please God. And with this faith, even when we stumble, God will still be faithful because he is gracious. So let's just bring this home now. Today we've looked at the story of two heroes of our faith who stumbled when they doubted the promises of God and decided to take matters into their own hands as a result of being unduly influenced by the cultural expectations of their time. And we've realised that if these heroes stumbled, we shouldn't be surprised if we do the same. At some point in our lives, God will put us in a situation which exceeds our capacity to believe that he is good and faithful. But don't be surprised when you fail. It's how you deal with it that counts. When we fail, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, isn't it? It's his grace that shows us what he's truly like. And now, imagine what Abraham and Sarah thought when Hagar returned after encountering God. And she told them that the Lord had appeared to her. Remember, she is not only a woman, but a slave. The, the very least uh, deserving person in those days. That uh, to whom God would have appeared to. Not only did God appear to her, but he told her that her descendants would be too numerous to count and that she should return to her mistress and submit to her. Now, isn't it amazing that Hagar is the first and only character in the Old Testament to confer a name on God, El Roy, the God who sees me. El God, Roy, sees, the God who sees me. Here's a question. How would you have felt if you were Sarah at that point? God was gently letting Sarah know through Hagar that he had noted Sarah's mistreatment of Hagar. Yet there's no harsh words from God. Such graciousness. Because of that graciousness, Abraham and Sarah never again tried to take matters into their own hands. Instead, they remained in Canaan. Abraham stumbled, but he kept obeying, even though it was difficult. And yes, there were consequences, but God covered their failure to adhere to the covenant that he had made with them. And he still brought, still brought about his promises in their lives, as he had promised. So I believe that God wants you to know today that he is greater than your failures. He has credited you with righteousness, and he has paid it all, as he had promised. You are not only forgiven, but you are held by God's grace in a state of forgiveness. As you continue on facing the challenges in your life with God, can I encourage you to rest in his love and grace. Keep looking to him for everything you need. 
He is Elroy, the God who sees. And just as he saw Hagar and the hardship she went through, so he sees you too.